Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public service professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by conservative Jonathan Greenberg and liberal Patrick Hanley. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base, AM560, The Answer, WIND Radio in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines are now open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 if you want to be a part of the program with us this evening. So much to talk about, and uh, the place that I would like to start is a, uh, a, a story that continues to just develop and develop and seems to be another version of a story that we had already dealt with before in a different, uh, at a different matter with a different individual, and that is the repeated uncovering of, con- of uh, top-secret documents in the possession of current president Joe Biden. Uh, most of them seem to be dating back to the time that he was the vice president of the United States under Barack Obama. Uh, The most recent story, I'm reading one here from yesterday. The FBI on Friday uncovered more classified documents while searching President Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware. Over the course of 13 hours, investigators found six items composed of records determined to be sensitive, according to Bob Bauer, Biden's personal lawyer, which he said in a statement that he released. Here is the full quote. DOJ took possession of materials it deemed within the scope of its inquiry including six items consisting of documents with classification markings and surrounding materials, some of which were from the president's service in the Senate and some of which were from his tenure as vice president. DOJ also took further review personally uh, handwritten notes from the vice presidential years. Patrick, I will go to you first. So this is uh, (laughs) like the sixth different iteration of this uh, story breaking about uh, President Joe Biden and classified documents in his possession do we not do we should we care about this and do people care about it for any reason other than there is this huge compulsion that seems to exist out there for people to be truffle swines for hypocrisy (laughs) that uh, that is the big thing that everybody seems to care about is that they want to be able to accuse the other side of being hypocritical and the things that it criticized and vice versa that that is is there anything more to this than that and and is this actually any kind of a big deal I, I wish I could take your optimism to the American voters. I, I love the way that you framed that, and I think that's about right. But I got to say, this is something that Fox News isn't going to let go. Uh, Republicans aren't going to let go. And so Americans are going to hear more and more about this. And there's going to be this false equivalence with what, of course, uh, former President Trump did. And I think it's important for us to reiterate that there could not be a sharper contrast between the way that the Biden team and the Trump team dealt with documents in their possession. I mean, the Biden team came across some documents, immediately alerted the DOJ, invited the FBI and the DOJ to come search the Penn Center and in Biden's house. Uh, And now the, the Biden administration through the Department of Justice has appointed a special counsel to look after the the matter this guy who was appointed himself by the Trump administration uh, versus in the Trump case, you know, the former president took selected documents, ones that he wanted, ones that we know he wanted and probably used as leverage with foreign governments, uh, which was intention, and then for months and months refused to cooperate with the FBI and the Department of Justice, uh, triggering the raid on his house. So there was deception. So two huge differences in the way that these things have been uh, dealt with. But I got, listen, taking a step back, taking off my Democrat hat, this is a huge unforced error. Elected officials should not bring 
top secret documents home. Uh, it is, it's a challenge not to, as I'm sure you know, we can chat about in a minute. Uh, Overclassification is a huge thing in DC. Uh, in fact, if there is a, a piece of information that is classified by the government, has been reported in the press, government officials can't share that without classifying it. So, you know, it, it's, it's tricky to follow all these things, but yeah, it's, it's gonna be, we're gonna hear about more of it. Jonathan, I'll, I'll pose mostly the same question to you, and that is, you know, th this is a story we continue to have iterations of as they find more and more documents that are in current President Biden's possession. Um, is this something that we should care about, and are we caring about it uh, to the extent that people are caring about it? As Patrick just mentioned, that it is something that Fox News has latched onto. It is something that Republicans have latched onto. Um, is this really just because, as I said before, people uh, have this huge drive to be truffle swines for hypocrisy and wanting to, to compare the way that CNN and Democrats reacted to the discovery of these classified documents that were at Mar-a-Lago that President Trump had taken, um, and they want to make these equivalent stories now. So feel free to you know take this pinata and hit it from any angle you want <laughs> to, because I'm sure some reward is going to come out. Um, well, I, I think I'm going to largely agree with Patrick. I think that um, the... First of all, the overclassification problem is real. Um, we, we, and not only that, but I think it's really important for people to keep in mind the idea that Joe Biden packs his own briefcase or packs his own boxes when he leaves an office or that any high-ranking official, like they, they, these guys aren't sitting around packing their own stuff. People do that. They have staff who do it. Uh, I would largely assume that if there is some of the documents that they've uncovered in, in Delaware are from when Biden was a senator. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe Biden didn't pack. Joe Biden was in the same Senate office for what thirty something years. He didn't pack his own Senate office. Give me a break. So the like the idea that, that there's something nefarious going on here is really unlikely. Um, uh, that said, I, I do think I agree again. I agree with Patrick. I think there is uh, there is at least the possibility of a difference between what the motive was in the Trump case and what the motive uh, likely was in the Biden case. Um, do I think that makes it any more important that Trump took those, had those documents at Mar-a-Lago? No, I don't. I don't think it's particular, a particularly big deal. Um, but the, I just have a really hard time caring about this. And I, I think that the overwhelming majority of people only care about this insofar as they can use it to beat the other side over the head with. Um, which, you know, is part of the overall unhealthiness of our politics. Yeah. Well, let me put this question back to you then, because as, as you just alluded to, that you don't think the Trump incident is all of that big of a deal. Um, what Patrick had pointed out there was of course, uh, what we seem to be able to divine, that there was some kind of a difference in the motivation for what was going on. Um, that Certainly there was attempts by the National Archives and by the federal government to recover these documents that were at Mar-a-Lago, uh, eventually being so unsuccessful that it led to the FBI showing up to reclaim them. So yeah. why is this not a big deal? Yeah, and so I, I'm willing to, so first of all, if there's a, an investigation, I'm willing to accept that it might have been a big deal. My my initial reaction is that it's not a big deal for Trump to have those documents that um, from what little we know about them. Uh, and that uh, if, the, if the National Archives wanted them back, if there was a reason for the National Archives to have them back and for Trump not to have them, then the FBI going in and getting them is exactly what should happen. Uh, they, they should tell the FBI that, you know, the, the, the former president has these documents and won't give them back to us, and we have a right to have them here, and he shouldn't have them there. And the FBI goes in and gets them, and that's exactly what should happen. Um, 
if, as I suspect, there's a reason uh, for Trump to have those documents that I wouldn't like, uh, then that's uh, that's also a matter for the FBI. Uh, and I'm perfectly willing to hear what they have to say about it. But my, my initial reaction to someone finding that classified documents are where they shouldn't be is to yawn because documents are over generally overclassified and mm. these people mm. aren't packing their own stuff when they leave office right right patrick we will come back after the break and we'll get your reaction to that and uh well any other angle of the story that we can possibly tackle it from eric Cohn filling in tonight for bruce dumont on beyond the beltway At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect, so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org.
We are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And we've been talking about the continually breaking story of the repeated discovery of classified documents in uh, the possession in different places of uh, President Joe Biden, uh, following, of course, uh, only a few months after the big story of the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago and taking back a whole bunch of classified documents. Uh, Patrick, I'll go to you, and you can feel free to react to anything that Jonathan had said there before the break. But I, I think the interesting part to discuss is something that you have both brought up, which is the problem of overclassification and uh, too much secrecy in the federal government. And of course, anybody who has listened to me when I was a guest on this program, as opposed to a host on this program, uh, knows that I am a, a crazy or not crazy libertarian, depending on how you want to uh, want to look at that. Um, so, yeah, the problem with too much secrecy in the federal government is one that definitely alarms me. So, uh, Patrick, feel free to uh, respond to anything that Jonathan had to say, but uh, address what you see as the concern with overclassification and this level of oversecrecy that we see in the federal government repeatedly. And I think that we've seen as observable through the evolutions of uh, both this story and the Trump story. Yeah. What is the, uh, you'll have to help me on this, Eric or Jonathan, what is the razor? that says don't assign uh, malice what should be assigned stupidity Hanlon's razor, but so, the Brits have a much better way of saying it as they always do, which is cock up before conspiracy. <laughs> uh, so we'll just we'll default. To I the think Brits that's about right. So it. let me just let me just uh, very lightly defend why big bureaucracies would do that. And I think the reality is that uh, governments have a very different risk tolerance because we hold them accountable and we, we force them to have a much lower risk tolerance than would the private sector or anything else. So if you're inside the government, if you're working at the State Department, or if you're working at one of the intelligence agencies, and you have the slightest uh, suspicion that something could lead to a source, could identify a source, could uh, disclose information that the public ought not know about for certain special reasons, for special interests, whatever it is, you are probably going to err towards classification. Now, that's wrong. That is bad. I see why it happens. It's frustrating. Um, and to the point that you just made, Eric, at the highest, at the largest level, at scale, when the whole federal government does this, uh, you create a ton of uh, red tape bureaucracy, confusion, the inability to make good decisions because of compartmentalized information across the government. And then, of course, we're withholding a, a ton of information from the public, which as a democratic society, we don't want to do. Um, this is a bear, but it's also something that I don't know that anybody is going to be rewarded for tackling. Any politician is going to be rewarded for tackling. So I, I think this needs to be a bipartisan, maybe probably legislative effort to reform the way that we classify things. But let's let's make no bones about it. It's going to be a, a big, big project. Um, but it has to happen. It has to happen at some point. Yeah, Jonathan, this reminds me of a uh, Bill Buckley description once of like the kinds of traps we lay for ourselves with the size and scope of the federal government, that you have situations where the federal government regularly invades against the use of tobacco and at the same time is subsidizing tobacco farming, um, that you have this uh, you, you have this problem of overclassification that with, as you said, you know, you have 
uh, people like uh, former Senator, former Vice President Joe Biden. They don't pack their own offices up. A whole bunch of stuff gets taken with them. Um, we can examine the Trump story the same way, although, as we've discussed already, there's perfectly good reason to think that there is a more malicious intent involved in what was going on in the Trump story. But it, it does strike me as one of those traps that the that people involved in the federal government just kind of inevitably lay for people like Joe Biden um, who have been in government that long, that eventually some kind of document that probably doesn't necessarily need to be classified is going to be taken out, end up in some place like, you know, the University of Pennsylvania or his home in Delaware, and it becomes a story like this. And I, I remember this, too, from being the uh, a lot of the analysis of the Trump story from Eli Lake at Bloomberg pointing out there's like until we have an idea of what is actually in any of these documents mm -hmm. it's not really that big of a deal because the levels there are so many levels of classification there are so many things that are generally unimportant that don't get to sources and methods or that aren't the knock list from you know the jason bourne movies <laughs> that you really need to be concerned about yeah i i agree I, I look i i think my like i said my initial reaction when i hear about things like this is to yawn um, and uh, I, I want to know what the documents are. Uh, the overclassification problem, first of all, people should realize is a problem because it means we, we can know less. There's, there's less that's going on in government that we're allowed to know. And also because of how those decisions are made, the, the, the relatively low-level bureaucrats who make the decisions to classify this document or that docu document, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million documents are classified every year. The number of those that are that contain actual important information is really, really small. Most of it is, you know, just, you know, butt covering stuff. So look, I would prefer that, that we, we classified a whole lot less stuff. It doesn't mean that you can just take documents wherever you want them. Look, it's not, it's not a joke. If something is stamped as classified, it shouldn't be in a place that it's not supposed to be. And when the authorities realize it's missing, they should go retrieve it. But it also, I don't, I think we want to be really careful about, um, you know, prosecuting it. Yeah. Uh, prosecuting uh, former elected officials uh, or, or current elected officials from previous offices uh, because, you know, their staff might have made a mistake when they were packing up boxes. If, if there's a reason to believe it was taken for nefarious purposes, that's fine. Yeah. But it's also entirely possible that, you know, there's a classified document floating around there from the Cold War that Joe Biden wanted <laughs> or somebody in Joe Biden's office wanted. So he can write a memoir one day about it and include that information. It's still classified, but it deals with the Soviet Union from 1983. Like, I just don't care. So you know, the amount of time and ink that have been that have been wasted on this, when there are actual important things in the world, really just blows my mind. And, and mostly, it's done by partisans to, to gain the upper hand. Yeah. yeah. Well, if 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 we had a uh, if we had political parties that were responsible, would this not be a great opportunity for a real bipartisan compromise? Because between. What we're seeing with the uh, the Trump story, now the Biden story, we can also go back to Hillary Clinton's handling uh, and mishandling of classified right. information with connection to her email server. Right. We've had numerous um, high elected officials and candidates for high elected office who have all had this problem. And I think the thing that, you know, the, maybe this is the hypocrisy angle of it, that it actually has some merit. I think the thing that drives people nuts is the inconsistency and in consequences yeah. for people who do these kinds of things. That if you are a lower level member of the military and you mishandle classified information, it is almost certain that you are going to be prosecuted for yeah. that. But if you're running for president of the United States, if you're a former president of the United States, if you're a former vice president of the United States, it is incredibly unlikely that right. you're going to be held legally accountable for that in any way. I mean, is this, Patrick, a, a 
should be the kind of thing that we could get both parties in some kind of agreement on that we should have a much more clear set of standards and a clearer idea of when prosecution is justifiable and when it is not. Definitely. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think Democrats need to divorce the Trump episode from the classification of the documents. It's not that the documents were top secret or the documents were classified, even though that's the, that's the clearest legal problem that Trump is going to have. It's what they were. Right. And what he was going to do with them. And to Jonathan's point, whether well, there were nefarious, there were nefarious reasons why those documents were chosen and taken to Mar-a-Lago. That's what's important, not the classification level. And so I agree. There's a there's a great opportunity for a, a bipartisan group to take a look at this and to offer recommendations. Um, I know I mentioned earlier that this this is a great opportunity for a legislative oversight committee. Unfortunately, uh, the legislative oversight committee in the House uh, isn't going to look at stuff like this because they're going to be way too busy yeah. grandstanding about all their favorite things to talk about on Fox News. Hunter, um, Hunter Biden's laptop needs to be discussed, obviously. Yeah, right. Great. Yeah. So, um, uh, Eric, just a couple of things on that point. First of all, Patrick is, was absolutely right earlier when he said there's, there's really no incentive mechanism uh, to, to clear this up, um, at least not um, in the legislative branch. And But the second thing I wanted to touch on about the, the different prosecution, you know, prosecution of a, a lower-level person, to be fair... Um, a lower level analyst or, or, or someone in the military really isn't in a position to know if the document they're handling is dangerous or not. True. Whereas a high level uh, decision maker is in a much better position to have more access to more information and know if the document is potentially damaging or not. And so, you know, the, the, the thing that we always talked about with, um, you know, reality winter or, uh, or uh, Chelsea Manning or some of those, those people are not in a position to know if the, the intelligence they're handing over is deeply problematic or is really nothing. They, don't, they wouldn't know that where a higher level official would. Right. Well, this, I think this comes back to an interesting question. One of the names that you also didn't mention there was uh, Edward Snowden. So this has always been where I've been in between on this story because I, it's not that I don't understand and have never understood the arguments for releasing all kinds of information like that without regard to how uh, secret or dangerous any of it was. Mm -hmm. But I never understood the other possible avenue for discovering that the federal government was engaged in some incredibly illegal stuff, like spying on its own citizens. Like the idea that Edward Snowden was supposed to work through the channels of the federal government that was illegally spying on its own citizens to blow the whistle on the fact that the federal government was illegally spying on its own citizens kind of seems like a dead end to me. I mean, am I wrong about yeah. that? Yeah, no, yeah, right. you are. Just because I, I would say that that doesn't mean that you can uh, release material into the public sphere that you don't know what effect it's going to have. And, and so if you're going to be a, a whistleblower, that's fine. If you find something terrible and you want to blow the whistle on it, but you're going to have to suffer the consequences. And I think people like Edward Snowden should go to jail for a very, very long time. Patrick? I think that's about right. I think the reality is that we need a government that can withstand with whistleblowing and, and can deal with that in a reasonable way. You've got to have uh, independent inspectors general that exist at all the agencies that you can trust and work through. You've got to have a legislature that you can work with as well. Like There's a reason why uh, there are skiffs in the Congress as there is in the executive mm -hmm. departments. Um, so this is something that the government needs to, to, to deal with. Jeannie from Austin, Texas is holding. We will get to her after the break when we come back. We continue to discuss this and uh, many more uh, important topics this evening on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. Hang with us. We'll be back after this break.
Goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. If you're talking, they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy, so we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. So talk, you can do it if you try. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We are back on the on the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont, and we have reached the appointed time of this program where we allow our esteemed guests to introduce themselves to the audience, and we will start with our liberal, Patrick Hamley. Sure. Eric, great to see you. Uh, great to be back on the show. My name is Patrick. I live in Winnetka, just north of Chicago, uh, and my wife and I run a betting company, betting like linens and sheets, not betting like horses. 
Uh, well, I, I thought you were going to go a different way with the betting part of it, but um, it's uh, uh, not, not a betting betting thing, but um, I, I guess that just shows you where my brain defaults to. But uh, why don't you tell people more about that and where they can find out about it? Yeah, of course. The, the company's called Piglet in Bed. You can find us at us.pigletinbed.com, and we sell uh, linen bedding sheets, pajamas, homeware, sleepwear, uh, all that sort of thing. And also, how are you? Uh, you you're involved as a, a card-carrying Democrat, as Bruce would say, correct? I am indeed. So my, uh, for all my sins, I, I lead the Democratic Party in New Trier Township, uh, which again is a township just north of Evanston in the Chicagoland area. And our conservative guest this evening, Jonathan Greenberg. Um, well, I don't do anything cool like run a betting company. Um, so uh, I, am, uh, I uh, help run a uh, mid-sized family foundation uh, that uh, invests in projects related to the Jewish community and to the liberty movement, um, especially focused on things like civic education. Um, and uh, I have a, a pretty extensive background in politics. I ran for the state legislature 10 years ago, didn't win, uh, which is really probably a blessing from a bottom line standpoint. Um, and from a sanity standpoint. Um, but uh, I left the Republican Party in 2016. Uh, I haven't been back. Uh, I'm a, a card-carrying conservative, though, so not a card-carrying Democrat. Or not a card-carrying Republican. Or a Democrat. <laughs> One or the other. I mean, it's... You're uh, always welcome, Jonathan. It, it, that's good. Uh, I, I was but, going but to a say... a good movement conservative. Uh, I was going to say, did you, you probably are thanking your lucky stars that you were not successful in your, uh, in your run for office. Um, because it doesn't, you know, it does not seem like the most fun experience for people out there right now. I think it's a miserable job. Uh, my, uh, my current state rep, uh, Jonathan Carroll, I hope I don't get him in trouble by saying he's a friend. Uh, and uh, despite our partisan differences, he's a good guy. And uh, I keep telling him that um, I, I like him so much that I would prefer he were not my state representative because I would like him to go get a job that wasn't quite so toxic to the soul. We're going to go to the phones. If you want to be a part of the program with us, you can give us a call at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to join us on the program. We're going to go to Jeannie, who is listening in Austin, Texas. Jeannie, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Hi, guys. Um, thank you for allowing me to speak. And um, I just want to tell you, I just looked up the piglet linen. I'm really <laughs> digging the women's pajamas. Oh, thank I'm you not so kidding. Much. Like, I, I don't you know. May, I'm gonna have Patrick to may have made a sale here but. tonight. That's uh, I think that may be a first on Beyond the Beltway, or at least while I've been on the show. So, <laughs> Well, I'm a rock singer. Uh, this year will make 40 years of performing professionally in the music industry. And uh, my opinion about this, everything you're talking about, is I don't think any president should take any documents home. Mm -hmm. I don't even get what Trump did. I voted for Biden. And, and unless he changes his attitude as far as the aloofness about the border, the aloofness about this, the aloofness about so many things, uh, this might be my first time to not vote in two years. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm just so done. But I just think, why are they even taking anything out of this White House? That's what I wanted to say. Thank you very much, Jeannie. Appreciate your call. So we, we've kind of hit around this. I mean, should Jonathan, you don't think it was a particularly big deal that we uh, that they're taking documents uh, to different places? I, I presume this is because of Secret Service protection and, and all that's uh, kind of guarding around them. I mean, to, to Jeannie's point, though, is it is it a trust thing that, um, you know, is, is, do you think this uh, I'll throw this to you, Patrick, as well. Does, does this have the actual ability for anybody to lose trust in an elected official over uh, this kind of mishandling of classified information? Yes or no? 
I generally think trusting elected officials or politicians generally is probably not a great idea. So um, if it if it causes you to lose trust, I'm actually okay with that. But the in reality, you know, to, to answer Jeannie's question, there there are good reasons why um, uh, former elected officials would take these documents with them. First of all, if they're not required to be filed in the National Archives, if their classification is older or about something that is no longer an issue and they want to write about it, which they would be allowed to do, it's really not a problem, even though a document may still be classified. So, you, I mean, Samuel, you have to understand, people like Joe Biden, I mean, have the highest level of security clearance. They're, especially now as president, he can change whether a document is classified or not. So the, you know, the, the idea that he, the man has access to whatever he wants. And yes, it's not allowed to leave a secure facility, but the question about whether or not that's a big deal would depend on what the document is and would depend on why he would have taken it. It's perfectly reasonable that a junior staffer who's assigned to pack up a particular uh, uh, shelf full of files would accidentally take some classified documents that they shouldn't. That's a perfectly reasonable thing for me to believe. So I want to know what the what the documents were, who packed them, and why. And and I'm perfectly willing to listen to that explanation. And if it seems reasonable, then I don't think we should be prosecuting people for simple stuff like that. Yep, yep. And the right thing to do was to appoint a special counsel uh, who can independently investigate. And I think across the board in the Trump case and in the Biden case, the DOJ is doing its job. And let's see, let's watch this play out. This is why we uh, this is why we care about and invest in and protect uh, an independent Justice Department. Let's make a bit of a transition in the subject matter here, but keep the focus on Biden and the uh, uh, the Biden administration. There's uh, news breaking uh, over the weekend that current White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain is expected to leave the White House soon. So, yeah. uh, Patrick, as our Democrat, I will go to you. Is, yeah. What is the significance of this, if any, to you? Uh, is this a sign that Joe Biden uh, thinks he needs some kind of a change in the way that his presidency is going and a no. shake up a chief of staff is the way to do no, it? No, no. I think the what we got to remember is that chief of staff, chiefs of staff have, a, have an average lifespan of about 15 months. Uh, that's about how long they've lasted in office. I think since about the Carter administration. There's a couple notable uh, uh, exceptions to that. Dennis McDonough was in there for four years under Obama. But two years is about the right amount of time. Actually, Rahm Emanuel in the first Obama administration left just before the midterm. And I know Ron Klain had gone back and forth about if the Democrats had uh, really lost seats and felt like we'd lost our mandate in the midterms, he might take the fall for that. He might he might leave for that reason, which is kind of ridiculous and awful politics. But the, the reality is, let's take a step back and, and thank Ron Klain for his service. I know he's an outstanding public servant who's got decades of public service under his belt. He did a really great job in a difficult administration at a tough time, juggling foreign policy, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the Ukraine invasion, um, COVID-19, all sorts of incredibly difficult uh, challenges that he juggled, I think, fairly gracefully in, in two years. So we all owe him a debt of gratitude. Um, and then to the, to the, I think, the second point that you were making, the guy who replaces him, Jeff Zients, uh, is an interesting choice because he's such a technocrat. Uh, he's really, he led the COVID-19 effort uh, for the Obama, or for the Biden administration, and is not a political operative in the same way that Ron Klain was. Uh, and so to any extent that we can divine a shift in Biden's strategy, we might say uh, less of a focus on the politics and more on the substance. But I'd be curious to hear what you and, and Jonathan think about that. Jonathan, go for it. 
Yeah, no, I think I, I mean I, I think Patrick's assessment is correct. It's, it, there's a standard amount of time for a team. It's a tough job. Um, yeah. It's not a particularly good job, um, even though you're. Uh, you know, I, I also I, I think running this particular White House would be a challenge. I think and running any White House is a challenge. This does not seem to be a particularly um, bought in. It's it, the the last White House that I saw that was particularly well run was Obama's, and I think that's because everybody was deeply loyal to Barack Obama in the White House, and there wasn't a lot of talking out of school. That's not the case in this White House. It, it, it leaks a lot more than the Obama White House did, and so it's a tougher ship uh, to sail. I'll also say, look, the guy's sixty-one years old. This is the pinnacle of his career. He he's got I think he's got three kids, yeah. and he might just want to spend some time with them. Like it, it, you know, it, the reality is, this is a twenty-four-hour-a-day job. You are, uh, you know, second only to, probably to the president. You are the most important person in Washington. It's it, it's exhausting, and um, and it's all the time. And so I think that. About two years seems about right, unless you're a younger person or you're insane, <laughs> uh, which I think most people in high office nowadays are. But the, I, I, this doesn't. I, I think it's probably good. And, and I'm look. The only thing I like about Ron Klain is that he's a fellow Hoosier. Um, but other than that, I wish him well. Uh. Well, at least we can say that it is not the worst job in Washington, D.C., because I think we all know that that is Speaker of the House. Uh, <laughs> I think you'd rather be the White House Chief of now Staff than Speaker of the House. So I, I think it has been for a while uh, Speaker of the House is the worst job in Washington. But I'm, I'm Patrick, I'll, I'll let both of you comment on this briefly as we're coming up on a break. But uh, one of the things that was different about Ron Klain is that uh, he felt uh, prey to one of the great temptations, which is to be on Twitter. Um, do you think Ron Klain was well served by being on Twitter and creating these weird tea leave reading kind of, oh, look who he's retweeting no. now and what does that mean? No, 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 nobody ever is. I mean, with the exception of a few people that are making lots of money off of big followings on Twitter and kind of expanding their influence in what I think is kind of a cheap way. No, I don't think any senior administration officials really benefit very much from being on Twitter, which has kind of devolved in the last few months uh, as it is. Oh, uh, Patrick, he's not being generous enough. It devolved a long, long time ago. I think we, anybody who's been on Twitter Fair. for a while knows that the uh, the devolving of it started yeah. uh, probably about 15 minutes after it was invented. Uh, Jonathan, anything real quick? We've got about 30 seconds before we break. No, it's a, a boring night. I, again, I agree with Patrick. Well, there's too much agreement on this program, so we're going to have to find something that the left and the right side of this program can disagree on, and I'm not sure what that is, but I'm going to have a couple minutes of a break here to try to come up with one of those topics that our uh, guests from the right and our guests from the left can possibly disagree on. If you know of a better one, give us a call and be part of the program at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. 
At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control. And priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it. Not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And before the break, we were discussing the uh, breaking news that Ron Klain, the current White House Chief of Staff, is going to be departing from that position. And uh, Jeff Zentz is going to be named the new White House Chief of Staff. I'm looking at uh, an article here from Politico about that story. And uh, something interesting that stuck out to me that Patrick had pointed out, which is that uh, Zentz had run the Biden administration's uh, COVID response. And I'm curious if this is, look, you know, this is the president's decision. This is not something that needs to go through confirmation or anything like that that's going to become really a big political narrative. But, you know, nonetheless, we're here to talk about these narratives. And I'm wondering if the fact that he ran the COVID response for the Biden administration is going to be one of those things that is going to get over-talked about. Uh, because it strikes me as the kind of thing that nobody is going to be pleased about, because Republicans who are going to be um, uh, on the offensive against whoever is involved in the Biden administration are certainly going to uh, be of the opinion that the Biden administration's response to COVID, no matter what they were considering doing or did, was going to be too heavy handed, was going to be too technocratic, which is exactly the word that uh, Patrick used. Mm -hmm. 
Um, on the other hand, what I thought was interesting that I find in this political piece is that uh, he has his critics about the Biden administration's COVID handling coming from the left as well that thinks uh, under, quote, under his leadership, it did too little to limit the virus's spread, mm -hmm. prioritizing economic concerns like quickly reopening businesses ahead of the public health steps needed to give the U.S. a shot at eradicating the disease, end quote. Uh, Patrick, does this open up perhaps a uh, a debate that Democrats would rather not have in uh, January of 2023 about the way COVID-19 was handled in the previous several years? Oh, I think they'll try it. I think I think this will run as a news story on Fox and we'll see whether or not it picks up steam. I hope it doesn't because I kind of think it's a nothing burger. Uh, I would just say that if you're getting yelled at from the right and the left, as somebody in such an important bureaucratic position, you're probably doing something right. Uh, it sounds like uh, Jeff managed COVID quite well, given the constraints that he was given. And I imagine that's why he got promoted to the chief of staff job is, you know, the job itself is really all about juggling a million different things at once and not dropping any balls. Um, so if anything, I see this as a, a depoliticization of the position, uh, whether or not Republicans are gonna let folks let the Biden administration get away with that um, is is up to Fox, I suppose. But we'll we'll see. Yeah, Jonathan, so do, do you think uh, I guess a chance to say, do, do we think the Biden administration has handled COVID-19 particularly well? Because the new chief of staff who will be uh, playing a key role in directing the Biden White House for the next two years was the person who was directing the COVID-19 response for the last couple of years. No, I don't think the Biden administration handled COVID well. I don't think most people handled COVID very well uh, in positions of power. And uh, I don't think that has anything to do with this guy becoming chief of staff. I think that the, the chief of staff serves at the pleasure of the president. If this is the guy that he wants running his White House, then that's fine. Obviously, whatever he was doing with the COVID response was the will of the president, not, you know, he wasn't out there freelancing. So uh, apparently the president felt like his ridiculous COVID policies were implemented quite well. And he's got the guy he wants implementing other. I mean, it's, this whole thing is such a silly. I, I'm, I'm sure Republicans will use it as an opportunity to talk about the Biden administration's COVID policies, which is perfectly fair game. And I'm perfectly happy to talk about those. But uh, no, that he wasn't out there making policy. He's implementing the president's policy. That's his job. That's like I, I don't the same thing goes for yeah, cabinet secretaries and deputy secretaries and everybody who works in the White House, they're implementing the president's policy. The president is ultimately the one who's responsible for the policy. If you don't like the policy, take it out on the president at the next election. But, you know, like, if this guy did a good job implementing the policies Joe Biden wanted him to implement, then that's on Joe Biden. And if he did a good job, then Biden can promote him to whatever he wants. Patrick, if you were uh, Jeff Sense and you are coming in as the new chief of staff in the Biden administration, what is the number one key thing that you're looking to change, uh, not just the narrative on, but what is the uh, the underlying uh, fundamentals of it? What What is the number one priority for you if you're Jeff Sense right now? Oh, that's a great question. And to echo something Jonathan said, I think very correctly, that's it's a horrible job and Jeff is not going to sleep for a few years. So bless his heart. Um, I think the, the caller that we had earlier mentioned the word aloof twice, which is a narrative about the Biden administration, which I don't think personally is fair. I think the Biden administration has done a ton of things and has a hard time articulating what it's done. But I think combating that sense that the president is in any way aloof from problems that are perceived to be important by the American public. And I think 
you know, to, to name a couple that, that we're having trouble on, immigration is certainly number one. Uh, I think the, the re economic recovery is one that is ongoing. And then public safety are three concerns where the Biden administration, I don't think, has been able to get its hands around uh, a strong response in a way that satisfies most Americans. To be, fair, the Biden administration, to be fair, the Biden administration has trouble articulating things because the president has trouble articulating English words. Cheap shot. <laughs> but, but, but accurate. No, look, I think, I think, the, I, I, I think it's a good question. What is the most important thing to do? I actually don't disagree with Patrick. That's the, they, have a, they have a real messaging problem. Um, it didn't kill them in the midterms because the, you know, the Republicans did such a terrible job of, of bringing in candidates and because Trump was involved. Um, and, but I think you can't constantly count on your opponents um, you know, self-immolating. Uh, yeah. So uh, if uh, in the extremely unlikely event that Republicans get their acts together in 2024, it would be good for the Democrats. It would be political good practice uh, for the Democrats to uh, do a better job of articulating who, who they are and what they want to do. But since the Republicans can't do that either, and since they keep bringing, you know, unpopular people, uh, to the poll to, to to run for office that I, I don't think it's i don't think we're going to stop self-immolating basically what i'm saying so. uh that that definitely seems like a distinct possibility the long-standing joke about the republican party being so good at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory is a long-standing joke for a reason and uh it's only one when the democrats aren't doing the same thing themselves so <laughs> i think we may have to be uh looking forward to a lot more self-immolation from both political parties uh, we will continue to suss that out, and we will talk about, uh, well, we may not be raising the roof here after the uh, the hour break, but we will definitely be talking about the raising of the debt ceiling and the political machinations that are going to go into that whole conversation. Uh, we want you to be a part of the program with us this evening. Give us a call at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to be a part of the program with us this evening. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. 
Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. Song again. Yay. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today. Here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Yay. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. We are back on hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohen filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And since I uh, ragged on Twitter in the last hour, uh, in between uh, hour one and hour two of this program, I was checking Twitter. For those who were such dedicated listeners to this program, <laughs> you may not be aware that uh, at halftime, uh, the San Francisco 49ers have a 9-6 to lead over the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, poor uh, Dallas Cowboys place kicker Brett Maher has missed another extra point. He missed four in the last game. And just to show you how Twitter can be good for some things, the two first tweets that I saw about this story were first from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who tweeted, <laughs> I swear I can kick as good as the Dallas Cowboys kicker. Not bad. And the, uh, the other one, uh, not the only Maher who's been drifting to the right. Which I thought was also uh, rather entertaining. Uh, so we we can come back to uh, football talk if uh, that kind of uh, discussion is necessitated. But um, uh, a story that does seem to uh, keep coming back, like uh, Brett Maher keeps missing extra points, is the debt ceiling. Uh, we have hit the debt ceiling. Um, you may be wondering, since we've hit the debt ceiling, why it hasn't necessitated Congress immediately taking action about it. And that's because... We have a Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve currently is doing what I believe is called extraordinary measures, which is a very fancy way of saying they're moving a bunch of stuff around so that we uh, do not go over our credit limit. But there is going to be a the first big fight in Congress, the first big fight that is going to have to be navigated by uh, newly minted Speaker of the House, 
Kevin McCarthy is going to be a fight over the debt ceiling. Uh, it, it is that has done a lot of damage to previous Republican speakers of the House. So, Jonathan, I will go first to you. You mentioned that uh, you are a former Republican. You left the Republican Party in 2016. So I'm not asking you this as a representative of the Republican Party. But do you see any possible way that the Republicans don't take this debt ceiling uh, issue, negotiation that we are about to engage in and find a way to make it really problematic for them and not for the Democrats? Wait, so... Um do I see any way that they don't do that? Do, I, do you see any way that the Republicans can avoid making this a huge problem for them instead of for the Democrats? Oh, no, no. I think they'll find rake after rake on which to step. Um, the, l listen, so from, from a conservative, good government perspective, this whole thing is enormously frustrating. Yeah. But then so is the Republican caucus. Um, the, it, would be, it would be a whole lot better if we had people who were serious about tackling the drivers of our debt. Mm -hmm. um, it would be a whole lot better if we had people who were serious about either reducing the debt, reducing government spending, or just the time to tackle our debt problem is not when we've hit the debt ceiling. The time is well before that. And you know, if we had people who were still good at legislating and not more interested in getting on talk radio, than they are doing their jobs. And this goes for both parties. Mm -hmm. uh, if we had people who were actually good at legislating and were capable of being in the same room with people that they don't agree on a lot of things with, like adults, mm -hmm. uh, we'd be a lot better served. But the, the, the time to tackle the debt problem, and there is a, by the way, Matthew Continetti had a great piece in the Free Beacon about this either yesterday or the day before. The, if the debt problem, is, it's a real, it's actually a real problem. And I would take Republicans a lot more seriously on the issue if they didn't spend the Trump years uh, blowing out, not caring about the debt. They never care about the debt or the deficit um, when a Republican president is in office. They just don't care. And, and so they have no credibility on the issue. I wish that they did because conservatives actually care about the issue, um, but it's certainly not a vote getter. So, uh, no, the, the short answer to your question is, no, I'm sure they'll screw it up. Well, let me stay with you real quick, because one of the things that I think is interesting and, and the problem of, again, coming back to the hypocrisy problem of Republicans and Democrats in their own ways, saying one thing and then doing another. Yes, we've seen this problem plenty of times where Republicans are huge fiscal hawks when they are out of power, they get into power. And what has been the typical way that I've observed these things happening is they at least pay lip service to some of these things while still finding ways to spend enormous amounts of money when it benefits them to do it. What is interesting to me is over the last, um, let's say, six years, seven years or so, since the emergence of Donald Trump, since this new populist wave of conservatism, if you want to call it that, you've had more voices on the right making what to me sound like left-wing economic arguments that these things aren't that big of a concern that we should be spending a whole lot of money to give out benefits to constituencies that this new breed of populist republican favors that that's the kind of thing that we should be doing we shouldn't be deeply concerned about the debt how does that throw a bit of a monkey wrench into this you know this whole situation because now you're going to have some of those people theoretically because it's politically advantageous to them to be fiscal hawks again, it's not just this, uh, the, the previous circumstance where they had been consistent on a message and then violated it by spending money when it was to their benefit. They actually did change their rhetoric over a period of time. 
Yeah, I think everybody wants to spend money that favors their political coalition. Mm -hmm. Um, And it used to be, I think, that Republicans were at least better at pretending they didn't want to do that um, Mm -hmm. while still doing some of it. I mean, you know, throwing money at the defense contractors and the like is, you know, certainly a a favored coalition partner of of the uh, American conservative movement. Um, But look, I mean, the reality is that we are now at, I think $300 billion of a $6 trillion budget uh, spent on service to the debt. That's an enormous number. It's a national decline number. It's um, it's going to start crowding out things that we actually do want to spend money on that all of us even agree that we need to spend money on. Mm-hmm. So if we don't do something to stop it, we're going to end up in a, a, a debt spiral that crowds out other spending that we want to do. So, I mean, look, the, both parties need to get serious about this. Both parties are going to need to learn to say no, um, and uh, the, neither neither party seems likely to do that anytime soon. And again, the time to do it is not when you're hitting the debt ceiling. The time to do it is earlier than that. We don't do anything in Washington. We don't pass budgets in Washington anymore. So we're, what, we're going to have a serious conversation about the debt? Come on. Patrick, would you agree, as someone coming from the left, that this is the amount of debt and spending the federal government does is a big issue that does need to be addressed? Definitely. Jonathan, I I just got to echo a lot of what you said. I think you've said a lot of good sense in this segment, and I I totally agree with all of it. And the one difference, the, the provocative thing that I'll throw in there is that I think when Democrats spend, we try and spend on productive investments, things like infrastructure, education, where we're going to get higher returns on our dollar. Whereas when Republican administrations have spent, it's been on wars, it's been on tax cuts, uh, it's been on giving that money to the wealthiest Americans, which is unproductive. Uh, But I agree with you. Uh, National debt is at a pretty unsustainable level right now. I think our debt to GDP is like 120%. We're behind Italy and Japan, but we're in the neck of the woods with Sudan and Yemen. Uh, So it's not great. Um, it's it's not a crisis, though, the debt level, and I think it's something that we need to bring down gradually without spooking the markets, but you're exactly right. All of this has to happen in the budget. It has to be a political process, uh, and if the Republicans want to impose steep spending cuts, take that to the American people, win an election, uh, and impose it in the budget. Or, hey, let's have a bipartisan compromise. <laughs> what would that be like? Uh, that, that would certainly be something uh, wild and new, and maybe we'll see it, but we probably won't. Uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to go to uh, David. Hang on. I know you're calling in from San Francisco. We want to hear you about the debt ceiling, and we'll also let Jonathan take a swing back at the idea that Democrats spend smartly and Republicans spend stupidly. That should be fun. When we are back, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Bye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. 
Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect, so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. We are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And since uh, Patrick, just before the break there, was so kind to uh, endeavor to be provocative and try to get our guest from the right to disagree with our guest from the left, I'm just going to go to Jonathan and try to force him to argue with our liberal guest this evening about the wisdom of Democrat spending priorities. Yeah, I don't think nanny state collectivism is productive spending. I think that the overwhelming majority of government spending on social programs has been a goddamn disaster and shouldn't have been done in the first place, and we should start cutting there. But since we're likely not to do that, and since I think to Patrick's point, and this is actually a really important point, uh, it, whether or not I think it's been good for society and civilization and indeed the people it's supposed to help, which it hasn't, um, it is nonetheless very popular. And uh, when you turns out when you give people free stuff, it, it's popular whether it's good for them or not. So the uh, uh, he's right. The, the, I would love to see conservatives try to make a case for small government, um, but small government's not that popular with Americans. I'll tell you what is popular though: a big government that I don't have to pay for. So they want the big government. Yeah. They don't want the taxes that go along with it. And I actually think having a debate about what the action, having both sides engage in a real discussion about what this is and what it costs and if you're willing to pay yeah. the, the actual price for what something costs then i guess we're going to go ahead and do it but what, that's not what we do either both parties want to get away with doing this stuff without paying for it yeah both parties 
Yep, which is yeah, wild. Patrick, this because is, this is one of the reasons why I used to have a lot more respect for Bernie Sanders than I do now. Because if you go back in time, Bernie Sanders was a lot more honest about the kind of uh, Nordic social welfare state that he wanted to see, and that right. the people who were going to have to bear the burden for the cost of that was going to have to be the middle class, because that's where the money is. Now, in the last number of years, and especially since he started running for president, when it was uh, obviously a lot less popular. To to tell middle class voters that we're going to raise your taxes by a whole heck of a lot. He backed away from that in the favor of this uh, idea that taxes on millionaires and billionaires, and then once it became public knowledge that he was a millionaire only on billionaires, that we're going to fund all of these great programs that he wanted. Well, I mean, it's just, as I think Jonathan points out, it is dishonest. I mean, the we can have a Nordic social welfare state like Sweden does that people like Bernie Sanders and AOC always like to point to, but we're going to have to have taxation commensurate with mm -hmm. that. And I just don't see uh, it being a very popular position for people arguing for that kind of welfare state to say, hey, middle class people, you're going to have to pay a whole lot more in taxes to make this happen. I haven't run the numbers in a while, but I got to say, given the amount of money that has been made by the billionaires during the pandemic, I think it's some astronomical figure in like the hundred billion level. Uh, there's plenty of money that can be taxed, uh, especially during a once in a century pandemic and you know war profiteering and all that stuff. Um, but I, I would just I, I agree with your broader point. I think it would be a, a more honest debate if the left were able to articulate how we should tax, what level we should tax, and where that burden is going to fall. And conservatives, honest conservatives, kind of a good faith disagreement about the level of taxation versus services provided. I think that's a good way to go about it. And God, this is, you know, this is West Wing politics right here, so it's never going to happen. Um, but I will just add that the way in which government provides services is also something that can be improved. Uh, I think there's a huge area for us to save money in Medicare and Medicaid, for example, uh, by several reforms, some of which are already being pursued by the Biden administration, uh, such as negotiating drug prices with the pharmaceuticals. So there are areas where we can uh, do government better, and I think we should, and I think as Democrats, that's the right thing for us to be talking about, is an efficient, generous government. Um, and then there's also the, the the conversation that we need to have as Americans about what are we what do we want to pay for and then how are we going to do it? I totally agree. We've got a couple of people waiting on the phones and I do want to get to them. But to contextualize this conversation a bit, I want to point to a, a piece by a friend of mine, David Hebert, who is a professor of economics at Aquinas College here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who wrote a piece uh, when the Powerball jackpot was a $2.04 billion about how quickly the federal government would spend through all of that. And just to give you some examples, federal spending <laughs> on education projected to be $73 billion. Powerball winnings would fund that for 10 days. Uh, defense spending is currently set at $714 billion. billion. Powerball winnings would last 24 hours and 30 minutes. Uh, Congress is slated to spend a total of $1.09 trillion on Social Security. Powerball winnings would cover that for about 16 hours. So um, uh, I think it puts in context exactly how astronomical some of these uh, dollar figures that we're talking about are. I do want to go to the phones because we have people waiting patiently, and you could be waiting patiently, and we'll take your call at 1-800-723-8289. That is 1-800-723-8289. Let's go to David listening in San Francisco. David. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Oh, howdy, y'all. Uh, since you're not on YouTube the, at the moment, I can't see who was the person that made the comment a few minutes ago about uh, Trump's populism. Uh, I don't consider Trump ever to have been a populist. Uh, 
and uh, you know, he was uh, basically a con man and a, and a currency speculator. And when you see the idea of bouncing the economy in order to use uh, it for currency speculation, uh, you see this in more of a devious uh, aspect. You look at uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, who were working with him from the start. They both were working with uh, currency speculators, with uh, dictatorships, uh, with uh, so you know fake populists, and uh, and basically manipulating the world's economies for mining companies and for uh, all sorts of interests who would. Uh, take advantage of the uh, commodities market. Uh, they, the idea of cheating whole nations by bouncing their currencies is uh, one of the aspects of this. The debt ceiling, of course, is part of it. And you start looking at the intentional disruption of the economy, that they want to ruin America's credit rating for the advantage of currency speculators. And then, of course, uh, if you've ever read uh, Naomi Klein's book on yeah. disaster capitalism, uh, the idea of intentionally dis uh, creating disasters so that real estate speculators like Donald Trump, uh, who did it back in New York uh, in the 1960s, they intentionally created white flight. They intentionally created a crash of the real estate economy so that he would be able to be given huge land grants at discount prices. And so when you start looking at this idea of America's debt uh, ceiling being uh, limited, and then, of course, the GOP in Congress right now, they're, they're trashing the ethics committee. Now, what is that going to do All to right. America? David, David I'm going to ask you to hold on there because I think we've got a lot out there uh, on the table. Appreciate your, uh, appreciate your phone call. I, I, uh, one comment I will make on that is I'm going to go back to Hanlon's laser, uh, laser, Hanlon's razor <laughs> about a lot of this, cock up before Should conspiracy. Be. Um, the intentionality of a lot of this strikes me as, uh, as a little implausible, but I will let either of you uh, pick up the bat and take a swing at that one. Yeah, I'll just, I mean... You can have a you can have Donald Trump be a moron, or you can have him be an evil genius. You can't have both. And, no, I, and my and my money my money's on moron. This is a narrative that goes back a very long way too. Where I remember uh, back in uh, more innocent days that George W. Bush was uh, an absolute idiot and adult, and he was also this mastermind who schemed us into all right. of these terrible things. Um, it is a repeating one, uh, narrative. No, but I think yeah. I think you can you can split the difference and have Trump be a a clever person who has spent his entire life trying to increase his status and try and grow his wealth despite his best efforts, and also <laughs> care very little about this country and about the the public positions that he holds in order to service yeah, those aims. And so, is Trump involved, or is he pitched by associates, devious plans on real estate deals and currency speculation? I certainly wouldn't pass, put it past him for a second. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he has any. I don't think he has any core beliefs besides what he believes is best for him yeah. personally. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just make one more editorial comment on David's call, which is I did find it amusing that he said, I don't think he's much of a populist. I think he's uh, more of a con man to which my ears hear. I don't think he's much of a populist. I think he's a populist. Um, <laughs> the, those things seem pretty synonymous to me. Uh, so Such a libertarian. We, uh, we, we, I think we're going to take one more call, but we're going to take it after the break. So I want to uh, stay on this topic for a minute. I want to come back to you 
uh, Patrick, because we were talking about, you know, again, putting into context those numbers about how much money the federal government spends. The last time we had bipartisan compromise on spending, uh, we had sequestration, right. which uh, both parties kind of agreed was about the dumbest way to go about doing this, but nonetheless was a way that we cut spending until all of that got blown up. If, if speaking as uh, as a Democrat here, if we're talking about a way to try to get federal spending and the deficit and the debt under control, where do we start? Where are you going first to prioritize um, how we start dealing with this problem? Oof. And and to be clear, let's let's do this in the budgetary process. Let's raise the debt ceiling and pay the bills that we owe, and then let's move to the budgetary process and talk together about how we uh, can possibly shrink the structural deficit. Um, and you know, I mentioned a couple things earlier. I, I think. Uh, frankly, going back to our friend Bernie Sanders, when you look at things like public health care and, and Medicare for all, there are major areas where you can reduce spending due to the inefficiencies of how Medicare and Medicaid are run right now. And I think you can save trillions of dollars in a decade, I think was the latest study that I saw, by implementing a Medicare for all program. Um, so that's that's one thing that you can look at is is expanding and simplifying the way in which we ensure Americans' health care. Uh, and then... This is the this is the tricky thing, isn't it? This is the tricky thing about cutting spending and where Democrats and Republicans both trip up as we all have our sacred cows and the government does a lot of things that people now rely on and the military, frankly, does a lot of things that the world relies on. And so there's going to be conversations with Europe about shifting military spending over to, to the EU and to Europe. Uh, there's but we're in the middle of a war. We're in the middle of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we we're not in a position to do that right now, but I think as as a as a good liberal lefty, my my mind goes to ways where we can uh, better share security responsibilities with our allies. Well, Patrick, I'm uh, old enough to remember the time when I was told a big uh, government health care bill was going to make things more simplified and cost effective. And boy, those were more <laughs> innocent times, which we'll continue to discuss when we are back after this break. Eric Cohn filling in for Bruce this week on Beyond the Beltway. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve! By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. 
And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We are back on Beyond the Beltway. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And we are going to go back to the phones where if you want to join us on the program, you can do so by giving us a call at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289 to be part of the program. Let's go to Eddie listening to us in Chicago. Eddie, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Eric. Um, I've been noticing that the... um Wages are obviously not keeping up with inflation because I just saw something on uh, Spanish urging people to ask their company for a raise. And UK is having a big strike about uh, the same thing. And then France is complaining about uh, raising the retirement age to 64 years old. But doesn't this all come back to the fact that we had a shutdown, the entire world shut down, and this is the boomerang effect? Let's go, uh, Patrick. Uh, any any thoughts on that, Eddie? I think that's exactly right. I mean, uh, wages and inflation have been up and have been very volatile in the last two years uh, following the pandemic, and it's been you know demand catching up with supply, catching up with demand back and forth. We're seeing you know thousands and thousands of jobs shed out of Silicon Valley as that uh, folks return to work from working from home, um, and I think the economy is going to have to level out at a place. Um, at some point in the next six to 12 months as we figure out how far inflation is going to come down and, and what companies can expect to do in terms of their hiring. Um, what I will say is that as inflation does come down, it does seem that wages are staying relatively high relative to pre-pandemic wages. And so I'm hoping that we can keep that strength and that eventually workers are going to be able to see the benefits of those higher wages. Uh, and I'll just throw in a quick plug. Uh, this administration has been very favorable towards labor and has done a really good job working with labor to think about how we uh, restore some of the rights that labor activists had uh, before Republican 
administrations stripped them out, and, and we're seeing more organizing activity because of it. And I think that's a really positive sign, uh, especially in the services industry, which is one of the fastest growing parts of our economy. Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, inflation is a direct result of bad policy choices made during the pandemic. And uh, look, inflation last year was over 9%. Uh, most companies can't afford to pay all of their employees an additional 9%. And anybody who didn't get a 9% raise last year just effectively got a, a pay cut. So, uh, which is why policy matters. Throwing good money after bad is a bad policy, always. Always bad policy, every time. Um, and uh, we're gonna suffer for that for, I don't even know how long, but uh, we should make less dumb policy choices. I will encourage people to check out the uh, the work and, and the thoughts from uh, my friend David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, who has written a lot about uh, inflation, I think who makes a very important point about not only the economics of this, but the politics of it, in that uh, we had been seeing, you know, not spending quite to the extent that we saw during the pandemic. We spent a lot of money in the middle of the pandemic. But going back to the early 2000s, we had continued to see increasing amounts of government spending, and we didn't get inflation inflation like we are seeing. And David's point is, well, what's the difference there? The difference is we shut down the world economy for a period of time, and we're still getting to a, back to a point where supply chains are recovering, where all of that is uh, that is was shut down is coming back online. So that we have effectively here um, a supply side driven inflation problem, not mm -hmm. the demand side driven inflation problem, which I think is yeah. uh, an important point and, and an interesting one from David and his political trap that he's worried about for Republicans is uh, making this about how much money was spent over that period of time. Um, is could has the potential to backfire on them, but he concedes that if he were in the same position as Republicans, yes, of course he would be blaming uh, Democrats for having spent too much money. Just the the possibility that it's going to backfire because that really wasn't the impetus for the inflation crisis yep. we're facing uh, definitely still exists out there. So no, I, I find David's analysis of this to be particularly interesting. You can always trust Republicans to make bad faith arguments about the way that government spending works, uh, and I think the the biggest counterpoint that Democrats need to talk about again and again is is the, the amount of money that the Bush administration and the Obama administration spent to try and get us out of the global financial crisis, which ended up being, uh, economists have determined in the last 10 years, uh, not enough by about a trillion dollars. And that if we had actually spent more money, generated more demand earlier on after the crisis, we probably would have had a shorter recession. And I think when you look at the recovery from the pandemic, uh, the economic bounce back has been incredibly fast and unemployment is at 3.5 percent the lowest in 50 years i think the economy in the u.s is actually very strong global uncertainty and global commodity pressures on prices is what's causing the pain to the american consumer and frankly a lot of it has to do with uh, volatility in the energy markets and guess what uh, one of the major energy exporters in the world uh, has invaded another country that we are supporting and so there's going to be a ton of volatility there Jonathan, because this is an audio format and uh, our listeners couldn't hear uh, how loudly you rolled your eyes at that, uh, feel, feel free to, uh, to to add words to those emotions you were feeling. I, it's economics one-on-one. You put money into the economy, you drive inflation. Just give me a break. All right. That's, e economics that. 102, so, it's ahead, a little more ahead, complicated. <laughs> economics 102. Uh, 
the, the supply demand difference is a major driver of prices. And then price elasticity is a major driver of how long they stay at those elevated levels. So yeah, to an extent, government spending drives some fiscal inflation, but that's certainly not the whole story. And it definitely wasn't in these pretty unprecedented times of the last two years. Again, why were they unprecedented? Because we had a once in a century pandemic that shut down the global economy. The shutting down the global economy was a choice. A choice that almost every bad, country and made, choice. and it was the right choice, and probably saved a lot of lives, right especially if we'd done it sooner. Okay, maybe it saved a lot, maybe it saved a lot of lives, but it also it also did, disrupted a lot of lives. It also ended a lot of lives. It also sent children back years in terms of their education. The 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 the, the cost of the of the pandemic response is never going to be fully calculated. Is going to unfold for decades. It was colossally badly done. Jonathan, we I posed an awful lot of damage on ourselves, and whatever lives we saved, we ended others. Jonathan, I too wish that we had an administration that proactively dealt with this global pandemic uh, and didn't ignore it for several months in the early days of 2020. Uh, I think we could have had a much more robust response if we had an administration that we can I'm, trust uh, Patrick, in 2020. Uh, listen, unlike you, I'm not in the business of defending one party or another. I'm not, and I don't trust care. me. I don't get paid like, for this. I, I, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> vote for Donald Trump either time, and I didn't like him when he was president. And so, like, and that's not a good argument for me. Maybe for somebody else, but for me, the issue is: yes, Donald Trump. Yes, Joe Biden. Yes, almost every governor in America handled this very, very badly. And I just think that's and, being way and, too cynical, and did Jonathan. A tremendous amount of damage to normal people. I think it's being way uh, too cynical. Who were at no risk, including people who were at no risk of the pandemic. Listen, I, I had the and. and, and 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 the, the non-scientific well, anyway we're not gonna worry about but the, the, like any damage that we did we did to ourselves no, this is good. I'm glad we're heating up at last. I had the um, I had the privilege of working with several state governments during the pandemic, and I think the way that you're you're kind of uh, talking about this from the sidelines dismisses the level of care, seriousness, and the amount of work that went into the pandemic response at the local, state, and national level uh, by serious, really smart people. Taken, I'm really glad that it was taken seriously and that policy was implemented sincerely. All bad poetry flows from sincere emotion. <laughs> I like that. I'll keep that. Um, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't disagree more, Jonathan. I couldn't disagree more. Well, I think you had, you had a chance there to attribute uh, Oscar Wilde to yourself, and uh, we appreciate your honesty about who you are and uh, and who you actually are deep inside and, and what you shared there. But speaking of that topic and people who aren't terribly honest about who they actually are, let's talk about George Santos for a minute, shall we? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> um, because this is a story that I have not had a chance to talk about on this program and that I find absolutely amazing in that the last thing that I read about it was uh, George Santos, uh, who tweeted in succession that... A, he was not a drag queen, and B, <laughs> he did not kill a dog. Um, and there's a joke in there about the musical Rent, if anybody else has listened to it. Um, uh, I'm not going to make it because probably no one else who's listening to this right. program is familiar with it. However, uh, is this, and this strikes me as the kind of thing that at a time where we all uh, had a greater capacity for feeling shame, um, George Santos would have resigned by now. Uh, Jonathan, I'll, I'll come to you first. Should he have? Listen, I think that when George Santos originated the role of Angel in Rent on Broadway, <laughs> uh, I think we were, right? <laughs> That's the Good meme job. now. Is that yeah. George, George yeah. Santos did absolutely everything. Like, um, no, he shouldn't resign because what are his incentives to resign? 
um, he should have, the House should have refused to seat him, which the House can do. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would have preferred that the, um, but it's, it's a swing district. And listen, all of this for me comes back, he was duly elected by the people in his district. The House has a problem with it. The House has a mechanism to not seat people um, who shouldn't be seated in the House. The House should have refused to seat him. Um, and they could have done that and they chose not to. I think probably they'd rather have him around to take attention off of other weirdos who are in the House. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 it'll be up to the voters in New York. It's New York 3, I think, right? Yep. So it'll be up to the voters in New York 3 to do something about it at the next election. I don't think he gets reelected. But again, what I've been saying about this all along is I don't know who was hired by the Zimmerman. It's Zimmerman, I think, was the, was the Democrat in the race. I don't know who his campaign had doing oppo. Um, whatever firm that is, if they're not already out of business, should be out of business. And no Democrat, if, I'm, I'm not in the business of advising Democratic campaigns, but if, if I were a Democratic campaign, I would certainly not hire that oppo firm. How did they miss this stuff? There, so, so, much, uh, uh, so much was out there, and they apparently missed all of it. And you think you would at least get the whole he was a, a South American drag queen story. Um, uh, you'd think that would be one that would, uh, that would come out. But uh, we, we will continue to discuss th this amazing story even more when we come back after the break. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra, an exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings, the kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. We all have the ability to touch the lives of those around us. To someone going through a difficult time, a text, a call, or a visit can mean so much. Reach out to the veterans in your life today. Let them know they're not alone. One simple act can make all the difference. That's the power of one. If you're a veteran in crisis or no one who is, visit VeteransCrisisLine.net for free 24-7 confidential support. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'll be here to hear what's on your mind. 
Kids want to share what's going on in their lives with the adults around them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, and more. They want to know you're listening, and they want to listen to you. They want your input and guidance early and often on all kinds of topics. When it comes to a serious subject like underage drinking, they want to know your expectations, as well as how and why, as a young person, they should avoid alcohol. How you talk about it will change as your child grows, but the important thing is to talk about it, not just once for an hour when you think the time is right, but in 60 one-minute conversations and more that are part of your everyday talks. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Back for the final segment tonight on Beyond the Beltway, Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the uh, George Santos story and um, you know, some of the just wild claims about himself that uh, George Santos uh, made. And Jonathan had weighed in on that. And Patrick, I'll, I'll give you a chance to weigh in as well. I'll give uh, some of them for you here. Um, his great-grandfather was a coal miner. His uncle received a Purple Heart. Uh, he graduated with three degrees. Um, he uh, full academic law school scholarship, only one to have a scholarship, graduated top of his. Oh wait, no, sorry. Those are all claims that Joe Biden has made uh, throughout his career. Um, so I, I, I say this to make the nice. point that uh, we're we're all acting shocked at George Santos and the inflation of his resume or the complete invention of his resume in some of these cases. But you know, look, this is not a problem that is uh, isolated only to George Santos. And in fact, the current president of the United States has a long history of uh, gilding the lily when it comes to his own personal story. That is that is a fair point, Eric. Well made. I will say that Joe Biden uh, spent about 50 years gilding the lily ever so often across his career. George Santos has managed to do it all in <laughs> what the the he gets two, points for efficiency. Weeks. That's you know that's exactly uh, what it took Joe Biden 50 years to do. George Santos was able to do in really just a, a matter of months. It's that Republican productivity for you. Listen, I'll take a sad, silly story, and I want to make two. I think hopefully more uh, useful and important points. I think the two reasons why George Santos is in the position that he is in today is first, the insane level of polarization. I mean, clearly a flawed, deeply flawed candidate who was able to win, probably not because of any special charisma or uh, credibility, but because the national environment in the district was going to elect a Republican. I think the gubernatorial election and the national elections and actually uh, nationalized issues around public safety were top of mind for New York third district voters. And so whoever the Republican was going to be was going to be elected from that district. But I, I think the second point is uh, this speaks to the decline of local media, which is a, a long term uh, very troubling trend in American society, American politics. Uh, I think there was one one organization, the North Shore Leader, that ran a story about George Santos uh, in September that picked apart parts of his resume, but it was never picked up by the national uh, by national media, and so nobody in the district saw it, which is a shame in its own right. And then Newsday, which is the other kind of local media source in the district, uh, 
published the 2020 Canada interview uh, in 2022 because they couldn't get George Santos to sit down for an interview. Um, media is a critically important part of our politics in a liberal democracy and in the United States. And if we can't hold our elected, our elected officials accountable uh, in the media, how can voters be expected to hold them accountable at the ballot box? Jonathan, I know you're going to, he brought up the media and uh, the way that it handles political candidates. I, I know you have something to say about that. Well, I don't think he's wrong. But, the, but fundamentally, these were, this was a nationally targeted race. Both campaigns raised and spent millions of dollars. Um, and, you know, the, it, as a political, as a former political professional, uh, my, I always go to, it's the campaign's job to put their best foot forward and to hit their opponent. And I don't know how you have an oppo firm who misses this stuff. I really don't. I don't know how an oppo firm that, I, I, again, I don't, I've never, I, I started to ever so briefly to look through their FECs and I got bored and I, I have no idea who they hired. And I don't care if it's my brother. I don't care. It's just ridiculous that, that they didn't catch this stuff. And ultimately they have a responsibility to run their campaign. And uh, the, uh, but he's not, not wrong about local media. And I mean, the, the New York Times can't do everything and doesn't do yeah. much well anyway. So, the, you know, I, I, I would prefer it if local media caught this stuff. Yeah. Um, would anybody have read it if they did? Probably not. I don't think anybody read. The reason local media has been destroyed is because nobody reads it. Yep. But uh, yep. he's not wrong. Yep, yep, I totally agree. And I think this is, this is a broader argument. If we believe that local media is important to the democratic process and important to our society, uh, it is on us to fund them, participate them. I'm not necessarily advocating for government intervention in media. I'm just saying our society needs to take a good, strong look at how we take in information and then how we pay for it. And how are we going to fund local media organizations that could cover things like this? This is a broader social conversation, not, uh, not exclusive to government. It is an interesting supply and demand question because the uh, the, the demand uh, seems to have evaporated for that kind of media. But you do see yep. um, I, I, you, you do see some interesting things when you see a lot of these journalists who launch independent substacks and then people's willingness to pay directly for that. And that has yep. always been the challenge since the internet came along: is how do you get people to pay for something that you can pretty much always guarantee to access for free in some way? Um, that, that is a challenge that larger organizations seem to have that individuals seem to have figured out how to monetize and it, I, to me it's uh, fascinating to try to watch and figure out how a, a newspaper or an online publication uh, can establish itself in a way that would allow it to do that kind of deep investigation that, that costs money and time that a lot of these publications just don't have right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's a, a an interesting example that I'm following carefully with the WBEC Sun-Times merger in the Chicagoland area uh, and this is an attempt to make a non-profit newsroom at scale. Uh, and so these two organizations merged as a nonprofit, and I'm excited to see where that goes. I think it solves a slightly different problem in media, which is the profit motive. Uh, but but it's an interesting experiment in a in an area that needs innovation to survive. Or at least the uh, the replacement of where profit is generated from, since classified advertising got obliterated. Jonathan, go ahead yeah. quickly. <laughs> no, I was just going to say I think that there there have been enormous changes in the media the not not just the way we consume news but who it is that's writing the news it used to be essentially a blue collar job it's mm. manifestly not that anymore and so the people who are writing the news are different uh, than they used to be uh and uh, you know eric you and i've talked about this in regards to the coverage of religion uh, that the overwhelming majority of journalists who cover religion cover it as a second language uh that's true of virtually everything in the blue collar yeah. space because all the most journalists today are white collar 
kids who become white collar adults. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's the, the, the entire industry has completely changed and they haven't figured out how to make money at it yet. And once they do, that will be okay. But we are uh, we're about out of time this evening and uh, on Beyond the Beltway. And I want to thank our guests, our uh, liberal Patrick Hanley and our conservative guest this evening, Jonathan Greenberg. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks you, thank you to everybody out there who called in to the program this evening. We really appreciate it. We appreciate your thoughts and your opinions and your sharing them with us on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you so much for listening. Eric Cohn filling in this week for Bruce Dumont on Beyond the Beltway. We will see you next time. Going back to school as a working adult doesn't mean you have to sacrifice a high-quality education. Purdue University, a top 10 public university, took its innovative thinking to a new level when it created Purdue University Global for working adults. Discover innovative, practical ways to earn your degree online and advance your career. Purdue Global has already awarded more than 1 million credits for prior learning, which means you can save nearly half the cost of your bachelor's. See how close you are to finishing your degree at purdueglobal.edu. That's purdueglobal.edu. Uh, goodbye, bench press. Adios, squat rack. Fare thee well, kettlebell. Hey, Kellen, need a spot? No, Jake from State Farm. I'm just saying goodbye to my pricey gym membership. What? Don't give up what you love. State Farm has options like insuring your home and ride with great rates on both. Nice. Hey, can I buy you a protein shake or a granola bar? Or... For surprisingly great rates, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com for a quote today. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at nhtsa.gov thewrightseat the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. At Jersey Mike's, you can elevate any sub by getting the juice. Red wine vinegar and an olive oil blend. It's how a Jersey Mike's sub gets its exquisite zing and how bites get boosted. The juice adds a certain something extra. An exclamation on top of the freshly sliced meats and toppings. The kind of exclamation you can eat. Order Jersey Mike's subs on our mobile app and get delivery right to your home or pick up from your nearest Jersey Mike's sub location. Jersey Mike's, be a sub above. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. 
brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.